Well, when you think of God in the Old Testament, what do you think? What comes to mind? What does God do? What does God say? And then when you think of God in the New Testament, what comes to mind then? What does God do? What does God say? I don't know the history of it, but there, there's been this long-standing idea that the Bible really tells of two gods. God in the New Testament is all about love and mercy and forgiveness, while God in the Old Testament is all justice and fury and, and wrath. In the Old Testament, God floods the world and brings down fire and judges the nations. But in the New Testament, Jesus feeds the hungry, helps the poor, heals the sick. But this view suffers from selective memory. Do you know people like that? It's like they only seem to remember what they want to remember. Well, people who believe there's a difference between God and the Old Testament and the New Testament are only remembering what they want to remember. For Scripture is just filled with verses teaching, for instance, God's love in the Old Testament and God's justice in the New Testament. I mean, how many times was God patient and long-suffering and loving to Israel, even after they sinned against him time and time again in the Old Testament? And just his election of Israel, his, his saving the nation was God's love. At the same time, people who fall into this error of seeing two different gods in the Bible fail to take into account the full picture of God as revealed through Jesus. Jesus was, of course, loving. He came, he died in love. But did you know that Jesus also reveals God's justice and, and really fierce wrath? In Revelation 19, for example, when Christ returns, it says he comes in righteousness to do what? To judge and to wage war. Verse 11. His eyes are a flame of fire. He's wearing a robe that has been dipped in blood. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he comes to tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. We're talking about Jesus. That's him when he returns. He himself is the one who conquers, kills, and judges the unbelieving world that has returned. People who have this idea that God is all mean in the Old Testament and so nice in the New Testament, they just don't know their Bible as well. God is loving. God is just, Old Testament and New Testament. Even while Jesus was on earth, during his first coming, we know he was full of love and he expressed God's compassion and mercy, and we're thankful for that. But he also expressed God's wrath and righteous anger. I mean, did you know that? And he also left behind some extremely harsh words. Did you know that? I want to just show you, to start us off this morning briefly, show you this. So take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 23. But before we get to 2 Peter, let's start off in Matthew chapter 23. Here Jesus is talking to the scribes and the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of Israel. But they didn't know God. They didn't love or serve or follow God. They were totally self-righteous, complete hypocrites, faithless, lawless, wicked. They worshipped self, not God. These were the ones who were supposed to lead Israel to righteousness, but like wolves in sheep's clothing, they, they only deceived the flock and devoured the flock. They were, they were false teachers. The Pharisees were the false teachers of their day. And Jesus constantly has nothing but harsh words and stern rebukes for the religious leaders. And this culminates in Matthew 23, where he pronounces upon them a series of eight woes. And the word woe means disaster or horror or calamity. And Jesus is literally calling down disaster and judgment upon them for their hypocrisy and wickedness. They turned from God. They thrived in wickedness. And so they would receive nothing from Jesus but judgment. And listen to just a few of, of he, his eight woes. For instance, verse 15, he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
Because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, means convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's that's pretty pretty serious, right? I mean, the Pharisees, they would travel the world on, on these missions trips, if only to convert a single soul. I mean, so godly of them. But their converts were not saved, but damned. For these religious leaders were blind guides of the blind. And they were leading people, along with themselves, to hell. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. He's just exposing their hypocrisy. I mean, they went to great lengths to observe the Old Testament law. They would even tithe their herbs, which God didn't even command because they're just so godly. They would tithe even the smallest of things. But they neglected what matters most, justice, mercy, faithfulness. They were truly blind guides. Some of them would go so far as to strain all of their drinks through a cloth mesh just to make sure they didn't accidentally swallow a gnat, which was the smallest of the unclean animals. But it was just for show. They're just complete hypocrites about their observance of the law. And in reality, it was as if they had swallowed a camel, which was the largest of the unclean animals. One more, verse 27. What do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. When was the last time you called someone a whitewashed tomb? You see what I mean, right? These are, these are harsh words, but they are all true. And Jesus speaks them to speak God's just verdict on these religious pretenders. And all this, not to mention his final sentencing on them, verse 33, how he ends, he concludes. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? I mean, are you surprised? Did you know that Jesus himself voiced such railing judgments against people? If people heard this today, they would call Jesus unloving and intolerant, wouldn't they? But Jesus was only expressing God's righteous judgment. And at the same time, realize in doing this, Jesus was showing love to the sheep. These religious leaders were false teachers. They were wicked shepherds leading the sheep astray. If Jesus condoned them, if he supported them, he would really just be leading the sheep into harm's way. Instead, Jesus paired his harsh words of rebuke with words of warning for the church. Be warned and beware of such false teachers that they will rise up even within the church. And they will make others twice as much a son of hell. It's pretty serious. It's a serious threat to the church. And serious threats call for serious words. Jesus saved his most serious, even harshest words for the false teachers. The Apostle Paul did the same thing in the book of Galatians. He saves his his harshest rebuke and words of warning for the false teachers. And as you can guess, the Apostle Peter does the same in 2 Peter. And you can turn there now, 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter, along with Jude, contains some of the harshest words in all the Bible. In 2 Peter, Peter gives some stunning descriptions of the false teachers. And his words are, they are harsh, but they are true. And the church needs to take notice. They're not directed at us but they are for us 
that we we might see through the sheep's clothing and expose the wolf at work. False teachers, they, they don't wear signs announcing their arrival when they show up. In many respects, they can look like genuine shepherds. But but as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so do they. And so we need serious words to expose them for who they really are. And Peter gives us some serious words in 2 Peter chapter 2. And this morning we pick it back up in verse 10. He started to describe these false teachers, who they were, what they looked like in verses 1 through 3. That's where we began. Then he focused on their certain coming judgment in verses 4 through 10. Now in the middle of verse 10, he he gets back to the subject of of their identity. How can the church spot false teachers and see them for who they really are? The church needs to know that you need to really be familiar with this portrait of the false teacher. And I understand we've been on this topic for a couple weeks. But just remember that God saw fit to include more words on false teachers. And so we want to continue to take seriously these words and these warnings about them all throughout the entire chapter of 2 Peter 2. So along these lines today, we're going to go through 2 Peter chapter 2, the middle of verse 10 through the middle of verse 14. And we're going to find two more general characteristics of false teachers so that you can avoid their destruction. Two more general characteristics of false teachers. If you remember, way back in verses 1 through 3, Peter gave us 12 characteristics of false teachers. But these were those rapid fire, these quick, short descriptions of them. Now he's slowing it down, and he's focusing on, on their big, general characteristics, what really sets them apart. And we're going to see a couple of these this week, a couple more in the weeks to come. And for now, two more general characteristics of false teachers so that you can avoid their destruction. And the first is this, they are revilers. They are revilers. And we'll start in the middle of verse 10. Picking up where we left off last time. Verse 10, he says they are daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels, who are greater in might and power, do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. Let me stop there for now. Midway through verse 10, Peter resumes his description of these heretical false teachers. He starts off with this double exclamation. He says, daring and self-willed. And first he says they are daring, that they push the limits of sin. And they're, they're reckless. They're bold in their rebellion. I remember as a kid, it's a typical story, but it, it really happened. It's the story you always hear, you know, your mom tells you no more cookies from the cookie jar. I remember that actually happened to me. We had a real cookie jar and everything, and she said, you know, no more cookies. And so, of course, I waited until she was out of sight, and then I went for them, like pretty much every kid I'm sure does. Now, I wasn't going to take them while she was standing right there. I, I, just, I guess I wasn't that bold. But imagine this. Imagine there's a kid. His mom tells him, no more cookies. He looks his mom right in the eye. He just reaches his hand over, slides the cookie jar off the counter, Onto the ground, it smashes on the ground. He bends over, picks up a cookie, and eats it right in front of her. I mean, what would you say to that? Apart from a, a serious spanking, I would hope, you would say, How dare you? I mean, how dare you? Because that's what the child did. They dared to disobey right out in the open. And that's what these false teachers were like that they were daring. They dared to take their rebellion against God just right out into the open. And, and they pushed the limits of their disobedience. He says they're also self-willed, meaning that they just do what they want. They persist in their ways with no regard for others. They can't be reasoned with. They're arrogant. And in the end, they're just going to do what they want to do, regardless of what others tell them. 
They're self-willed, which is to say self-pleasing. And notably, according to Titus chapter 1, verse 7, if a church leader possesses this quality of being self-willed, he's disqualified from ministry. That's because God does not want those who serve only themselves as shepherds. But now to illustrate just how daring and self-willed these heretics are, Peter first points to one example coming from their speech. He says they are revilers. That's the first general characteristic we want to explore today. They are revilers, which means they're known for abusive, contemptuous speech. It's, It's where you tear others down with your words. You revile them, you malign them, slander, just say hurtful, harmful things. Yet these false teachers in the church, they were so daring and self-willed, they they pushed the limits so far that they even extended their reviling speech to the angels. That's what he says. He says they slander, they revile angelic majesties. Now, depending on your translation, you might have a different word there. This word is variously translated. Glorious ones, glorious beings, angelic glories, dignities, dignitaries, and so on. The word in the Greek is just one word, doxas. It means literally glories. So the question is, who are these glories? What is he referring to here? And most agree it's a pretty clear reference to the angels whom Peter mentioned back in verse 4. The real question is, is he's talking about evil angels, the fallen angels, demons, Or is he talking about good angels? And here briefly, I think the answer is good angels. Because in the context, as we'll see, he's going to set up this contrast between the false teachers and and the holy angels. And additionally, although it's possible, it doesn't seem likely that Peter would use the word glories to refer to the demons. It's best to see these as, I think, the good angels. And so the charge that Peter brings against these false teachers, remember he's trying to illustrate their audacity and their boldness, is that they even revile God's holy angels. And they don't even tremble when they do so. They slandered God's holy angels without any fear. And and in so doing, they're really revealing their hand. As they revile the angels... The the lack of fear and respect they have for the holy angels really just shows the lack of fear and respect they have for God himself. It's amazing to remember these people were in the church. They claimed to be in the church. And people are like that today. They're in the church. You might think them Christians, but through their speech, it becomes evident they, they don't fear or respect God. Now, with these false teachers in Second Peter, it seems that their reviling of the angels was tied to their mocking of the second coming. Remember, the heretics mocked and ridiculed this, this whole notion that the world is going to end, culminating in the return of Christ and the judgment of the wicked. That's just a stupid myth, they said. But according to scriptures, Jesus is returning. And when he returns, who's coming with him? the holy angels. The angels come with him and accompany the Lord. And our text does not say this for certain, but it's likely that the false teachers extended their ridicule of Christ's return to the angels who come with him. Whatever the case, the point here is that their reviling tongues reveal who they really are. And it's no wonder that God has harsh words for them. Their their daring, their bold nature revealed in their speech. I mean, picture this. You've got a guy. He's the boss of a company. And one day he brings his his bratty teenage son to work. And in one moment, the teenager watches his dad calling a worker into his office. And he gives him a stern talking to. And the dad's not being mean, but look, this worker just screwed up. He can't do that again. He needs to be told. He needs a stern talking to The worker leaves the office. As he's leaving, the teenage son takes it upon himself to chase after this guy, and he starts yelling at him. He starts calling him names. He starts threatening him that he's going to get fired if he does it again. He tells him how much he screwed up. But this is way out of line, as I hope you understand. 
And this time the dad was watching, so the dad calls his son into his office. And the dad has a talking with him. And he tells his son, look, you can't do that. You can't do that. Number one, you're a child. They're adults. You should automatically show them some respect. You don't have the position to be talking to them to like that. To be talking to them like that. And secondly, I'm their boss. You're not. I have full authority over them. You have none. That you don't have the authority to talk to them like that. See, the child, he has neither the position nor the authority to be speaking to the workers like that. But this is how the false teachers were like. They were like this bratty teenage son, except they didn't listen to the counsel of the father. Although they have neither the position nor the authority, they continue to run their mouth and and revile those who are higher than them, the angels. I mean, how would you react to this? How do you think God will react to this? They are bold mockers who do not listen. But God is not mocked. And judgment is coming for them, he says. It's not coming from the angels, though. Notice he says in verse 11, the angels don't return the favor. Verse 11, whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. The holy angels fear God much more than these false teachers. And even though the false teachers revile them, the angels are not going to revile them in return. I mean, how would you handle being slandered by your inferior? Someone who is beneath you, maybe a, an employee, someone like that. I mean, would you take revenge? Do you seek to get even? In the Roman world, this was the expected response. A leader could not afford to turn the other cheek. That, that was a sign of weakness when, when a subordinate slandered him. He had to, to do something about it. So typically, leaders would respond vengefully, even violently. They would get back at the person. But what we see from the angels is, is that high road response, which really is the response of, of fearing God. These angels, they, they could have crushed the false teachers with just two fingers. They're so much more powerful than, than men, than these false teachers, of, of course. But they refrain from, from doing or saying anything because it's not their place and, and they feared God. And so this contrast that I mentioned is clear. The angels have a reverence for God which restrains their speech. But the false teachers, they have a reverence for themselves. And that lets loose their speech. There's a good secondary lesson here. Again, when someone slanders you, do you retaliate? Like a coworker, a, a friend, a spouse, a child? And they say something just hurtful to you, slanderous, defaming. What do you do? Are you quick to verbally strike back? Do you find yourself taking verbal vengeance? You have to remember that God hates such speech and he hates such a response. I think we all need the reminder, like the angels, fear God and restrain yourself, even if you're in the right. And consider your own speech before the Lord. And the angels surely knew this. They knew better than to sink into reviling speech, even when the other person completely deserved it. And let me show you an example of this. Just take your Bible and turn to Jude. It's just a few pages to the right. It's not far after 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, right before Revelation, Jude. It's just one chapter long and in many ways parallels 2nd Peter. And look at this parallel passage, Jude, verses 8 through 10. Jude, verse 8. Jude says, Yet in the same way these men, and he's also talking about false teachers, by the way, These men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. Same thing. But then he says this, verse 9, But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, 
did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So it's very parallel, like I, like I said. Peter and Jude, they write with similar interests against similar false teachers. Jude, however, he includes this example as to how the angels restrained their speech. And in this case, you get a little, little bit of behind-the-scenes access. After Moses died, remember, he was buried by the Lord in a secret location. And that we already knew. But here we learn something more, that behind the scenes, Satan was contending with Michael, who's the highest angel, over the body of Moses. And why would he do that? Well, most likely because Satan wanted to use the body or the bones of Moses to inspire some sort of idolatrous worship in Israel. I mean, they they did highly revere Moses. It wouldn't be that hard. Yet even in this angelic struggle, Michael did not do what? Verse 9, he did not pronounce against Satan a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Just, Just the contrast again and the audacity between the false teachers and the angels. These false teachers, they carelessly did what even Michael highest angel would not dare to do. Do you see that? The angels wouldn't even dare to do this, but the false teachers just carelessly let it fly. Reviling speech. You may wonder, by the way, you know, hey, wait a second. Why didn't Michael revile Satan? Why didn't he proclaim a judgment against Satan? Satan is Satan after all. He's pure evil. He should be judged. So, so why didn't he say anything? Well, even though Michael was holy and in the right, he was not the judge. God alone is the judge. Michael simply trusted God to judge. Do you trust God to judge? Again, going back to when someone reviles you, someone says something against you, or even against Christ or the church, what do you do about it? Do you respond with that verbal vengeance? Because after all, they're in the wrong. Someone needs to to take them down, put them in their place, right? But you are not the righteous judge. As God says, two wrongs don't make a right. Even as those in the world malign you and God, even if you're in the right, God does not want you to take justice and vengeance into your own hands. Like we read in Romans 12, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay And so trust that. Trust God to do that. Trust God to, in the end, make everything right. Like we learned last week. And he will. And do not become a reviler like the false teachers. Now, speaking of their judgment, you can turn back to 2 Peter chapter 2. And as verse 12 continues, Peter references the fate of these false teachers who revile. Back in 2 Peter chapter 2, look at verse 12 again. He says, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. This is harsh, but true. And Peter compares these heretics to to beasts, to unreasoning animals. They're not guided by intelligence or wisdom or spiritual truth. They're just driven by by the flesh, by their their sin-driven instincts, their their base cravings and desires. That's what drives them. They're like animals. They've lost self-control. They're unreasoning. If you're out in the wild and a bear was after you and wanted to eat you, do you think you could reason with him? Is there something you could say to rationally change his mind? No. I mean, it's like, what? What are you going to try and convince them that you don't taste good? Nothing's going to work because the bear is just a creature of instinct. Cannot be reasoned with. And the same goes with these false teachers. They're driven by the corrupt desires. 
their sinful instincts, and they just can't be reasoned with. They're hardened in their sin. They're dominated by sin. Now they behave like beasts. And like beasts, they're only good for one thing now, which is what he says, to be captured and killed. Like most unreasoning animals, they only have one real function, and that is to be food for something higher else on the food chain. Now that's what they do. Now back in the ancient world, believe it or not, they debated about animal rights. Did you know that? Back in the 5th, 6th century BC, the Greek philosophers debated about the nature and rights of animals. They asked the question, you know, is it right or wrong to capture and kill animals? What was their nature? They focused on an animal's lack of rationality. Aristotle, for instance, he denied that animals were rational creatures. And therefore, the laws of justice do not apply to them. Justice is only for rational beings. So yes, it is okay to capture, kill, eat animals. Then really, everyone throughout history has agreed. Only a few people today have started to, to change their minds on that. But nonetheless, as Peter likens these heretics to unreasoning animals, he's really paving the way for their just destruction. Like unreasoning beasts, they will share the same fate. He says, they will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. And in their judgment, what's to blame? Themselves, their own wickedness, foolishness, and arrogance. Like dumb animals, they run headlong into their own death. And they don't even know better because they're just driven by instinct. Their, their sinful instincts, their, their flesh is just driving them into sin, which in, which in turn is killing them. And they don't even know better. Whether this is true or a legend, I'm not really sure, but I've read of these tales of, of a hunting tactic used by Eskimos in, in the Arctic or Alaska They take a sharp hunting knife and they freeze it in a a thick layer of deer's blood. And then they take the knife, they stick it upright into the snow. And sooner or later, wolves come by and they start to lick lick the knife. They're attracted by the blood. That's what they go after. But unbeknownst to them, due to the sharpness of the knife and the freezing cold, with every lick, they're, they're cutting their own tongue. And soon, it's not the deer's blood they're tasting it, it's their own. But as unreasoning animals, they don't know better. Driven by instinct, they gorge themselves on this never-ending blood. But it's their own. And the same instinct that drives them to feed ends up killing them as they bleed to death. And like I said, whether that's true or just a myth, I I don't know. But what a perfect picture of the self-destruction of these false teachers. They're still enslaved to their sin-cursed instincts, which drive them toward wickedness. But in the end, it's their own sinful cravings which are to blame for their own destruction. They're destroyed, he says, cast into hell, Verse 13, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. This is the law of of reaping and sowing. What you reap is is what you sow. And for years they sowed wickedness and now they're reaping judgment. Peter uses a commercial term in verse 13 to show this is what sin earns you. All people are deceived into thinking that sin has a nice payoff. It's going to give you what you want, pleasure, satisfaction, But this is deceiving. And sin's payoff is only temporary. In the end, it doesn't pay you. It robs you. As Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. A spiritual death, a separation from God forever. Again, this end comes upon the false teachers as they are characterized by reviling. It's what drives them. Verse 12 adds, They revile where they have no knowledge. I mean, these guys are parading as teachers of the church, but they don't know. They're they're ignorant. They reject the truth. They deny heavenly realities. They turn against Christ. And they speak slanderous words with boldness 
Peter says, payday is coming. Payday is coming. Yet they're in debt. They think they have this huge sum coming their way, but, but in reality, they're in debt. And they'll be forced to pay that debt with their lives forever. At first, they are revilers. Getting to the second general characteristic of these false teachers now. Number two, they are revelers. Secondly now, they are revelers. And I have to say, you can't beat that parallelism, right? Revilers, revelers. That's just a one-letter difference. That's a good outline right there, just one letter. You can't beat that. But it's from the text. I mean, look at the middle of verse 13. He continues, after talking about their reviling nature, to say, verse 13, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Their stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. And stop there. It's just a one-letter difference, but we have two different words. For reviling speaks of their speech, while reveling speaks of their actions. And so we learn again that we can spot false teachers by what they say and what they do. And what they do here is reveling. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. This is a picture as to how they lived like animals, driven by the most base urges and desires. And placed emphatically forward in verse 13 is that word for pleasures. In the Greek, it's, it's hedonai. It's where we get the word hedonism from, which is that never-ending pursuit of pleasure. The idea of pleasure is not wrong or sinful in and of itself. That God created us to find pleasure in him, and even in some aspects of creation. However, fallen man pursues pleasure in all the wrong places, in all the wrong ways. God has set now boundaries on our pleasures, but these are ignored. The heretics especially had no regard for God's borders. They lived for pleasure. They are, like we once were, Titus 3.3, disobedient, deceived, and as he says, enslaved to what? Various lusts and pleasures. They're enslaved. We still see people today living entirely for self, for pleasure. It's whatever makes them feel good. That's what life is all about. It's all about just whatever gives them that, the next fix of just feeling good. Pleasure is the greatest good. People have been living like this for a long time, though. Way back, again, going back to ancient Greek philosophy, Epicurus taught that pleasure was indeed the greatest good. It was the highest virtue. He taught that the beginning and end of a blessed life was just pleasure and that no pleasure in itself is evil. It's all free. It's all good. Then just take a guess. Do you think that's going to be a popular teaching? Yeah, that, that's going to be popular. Now, ironically, though, Epicurus himself, he didn't believe in living a crazy life, you know, a wild life. He actually believed in a, a rather restrained life. But that's where his teaching led. It's really no duh. I mean, what do you expect? If you're going to teach people that pleasure is the greatest good, then they're going to pursue that as far as their depravity will, will take them. And it appears that these false teachers Peter is writing against were some of those friendly to this idea of pleasure. And that's what they were known for. They were, he says, revelers. They reveled in their pleasures, meaning that they greatly indulged. There was no holding back. In fact, going back to them being daring and self-willed, they even engaged in these pleasures in the daytime, in broad daylight. And normally, when do criminals do their deeds? Under the cover of night. At least back in 2005, a survey says that 63% of crimes were committed at night. And just remember, that's when most people aren't even awake. The night has long been considered a veil for dark deeds. And the same goes for pleasure seekers. It seems like when the sun goes down, alcohol flows and the, the pleasure seekers come out. Now, our society actually tolerates some reveling as long as it's at nighttime and away from our homes. 
But even even in the daytime, it's frowned upon. I mean, what would you think of someone who just got totally drunk at 10 in the morning? Even our society would frown upon that and say that is shameful. And the Romans felt the same way. But these false teachers didn't care. They brought their sin, their rebellion, their pleasure-seeking right into the daytime. And again, he's just building this extended portrait that they, they don't care. They have no boundaries. They have gone beyond all boundaries. They're daring, self-willed. They have no regard for, for others, no regard for God. They only regard themselves. It's that building portrait. It's a self-portrait of them. He says they also took their reveling into the church. Verse 13, Peter adds that they are reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. As they carouse with you. Who's the you? He's talking about his audience, the church. These heretics were claiming to be in the church and they even brought their immoral living into the body of of Christ, the saints, the gathering of believers. The word for carousing means to feast with one another. Back then it was common to have these great feasts of fellowship. In fact, the church even had these special gatherings called love feasts where they would meet together with the saints for a meal of fellowship and then they would share in the Lord's Supper together, share in the love of Christ. It was, a, it was like their form of a big potluck focused on fellowship and the Lord's Supper. But as we learn also from 1 Corinthians 11, some Christians even were abusing these gatherings. And they were turning them into a time to get drunk. Their feasting or carousing turned to drunkenness. And this was irreverent. Christ was not honored in this. Now it's, it's likely here that these false teachers... They attended these gatherings and they used the occasion to spread both their immorality and their deceptions, their false teaching. As they gathered to eat and supposedly fellowship, they infected the church with their deceptions, Peter says. And going back to that parallel verse in Jude, which we read before, Jude 12, he really says the same thing. He confirms this suspicion. He says of the false teachers, these are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Hidden reefs, that's a great word picture. I mean, just imagine you're on a boat, smooth sailing, coast is clear, but then you strike a massive reef just hidden beneath the surface and you're shipwrecked. You go from smooth sailing to shipwreck just like that. And that's the deceptive power of false teaching. It's no wonder that Peter warns them with urgency to to beware. And for this reason, he labels them for what they are in verse 13. He says they are stains and blemishes. These words are carefully chosen. Peter used the exact same words to describe really the opposite of who Jesus was. Way back in chapter 1, verse 19 of 1 Peter, he said Christ was without stain or blemish. And additionally, this is what the church is supposed to be like. It is God's will for Christians to be like Jesus, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, also spotless and blameless. Same words. The false teachers were the opposite of these. He doesn't say they had a stain or a blemish. He says they were the stain, and the blemish. They were the black eyes of the church, defiling the church and ruining the witness of the church to the world. Just giving the church a bad name. Again, this is why Peter writes with urgency that the church has to wake up and realize the false teachers really exist. They're out there. You need to identify them and remove them because they're stains and blemishes. They will take the church down with them if you let them persist. And then there's one last picture of their revelry, verse 14. They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. And be it when, whether they gathered with the church in general or, or not, their eyes were full of adultery, he says. It's a reference to their unending lust. 
Women to them were reduced to mere objects of, of sin and carnality. Every woman was, was just examined as a potential adulteress. But as Jesus said in Matthew 5.28, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's lust. Lust has an enslaving power. If you don't fight against it, it can quickly, quickly wrap you in its tentacles and just pull you down. Some people, they, they don't fight, and they're just given over to lust. And they think they're finding pleasure. They think they're, they're like we said, living for pleasure. It, it gives them pleasure. But the pleasure doesn't last. And so they have to sink deeper and deeper into the darkness to find that satisfaction. But the next thing they know, they've drowned in it. Their pursuit of pleasure through lust ends up wrecking their life, wrecking their relationships, wrecking their health. And they find themselves very quickly living a hell on earth. The false teachers had already sunk to this level. They were totally enslaved to their sensuality. They never ceased from sin. Their eyes never rested from this search for satisfaction. It's like Paul says in Romans 16, verse 18. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And that's kind of like what Peter says. They entice unstable souls. Peter draws on his roots here, uses a fishing term. How do you catch fish? I'm sure we'd all love it if they would just jump into our arms. It'd make landing, landing that you know big trophy fish a lot easier, but it doesn't work like that. You have to trick them. They don't want to die, after all, so you've got to trick them. You've got to entice them with something they like, like a little piece of bait. Now, under that bait, though, is a strong hook, and if you can just get them hooked, then you've got them. They're yours. That's how false teachers fish for people. They lead people astray through clever deceptions, through, through seductions, through enticement. And they prey on the spiritually weak and unstable. They find people who are easy to hook. They look for Christians who aren't wearing the full armor of God. For Christians who are not deeply rooted in the scriptures. Who are not planted in the faith. These are those who are adrift Spiritually mature, they're easy prey. These Christians need to wake up and they need to watch out. And the threat is real and Peter writes really to warn the church. These are harsh words for the false teachers, but they're also precious words of warning that even the church needs to wake up and see that the threat is real. That's his purpose behind this. Peter definitely has more to say about the false teachers, but we'll save that for later, and I'll do it for now. But just remember his purpose. Don't lose sight of his purpose in writing this chapter. And these are not empty words. It's not just a meaningless exercise going through these verses. God has included it in his word for a reason still. And that purpose is to warn. Be warned. Beware. False teachers are real. They're still around today. I think we know that. They even flourish. They bring, they bring destruction. And who do they go after? The weak, the unsuspecting, the unstable. And so if you want one takeaway from, from these words, it's this. If you don't want to be easy prey, don't be weak. But be strong in Christ. Don't be unsuspecting, but suspecting of false teachers. And don't be unstable, but be stable in the faith. In the case of false teachers, the best defense is a good offense. You have to get strong in the word. I mean, would you say that's true of you? You are firmly rooted in the word. You need to be so firmly planted that nothing can topple you over. False teaching comes like a wind. And wind is the greatest danger to a tree which has shallow roots. 
It's just a matter of time before a strong wind comes. It's going to fall over. But if a tree, no matter how big, has deep, strong roots, it will never fall. And that's how you need to be spiritually. So I encourage you to just take all this as another reminder, another reminder and a charge. It's so important for you to be deeply rooted in the truth, in God's word, in the scriptures. Study the word. Read the Bible broadly. Just cover your bases from Genesis to Revelation. Just get to know what it says all over so that no one can come and and tell you different. And read the Bible deeply. Make sure you're also digging down. You understand the truth. You know what you're reading. You get it so that no one can push you over. As Peter said way back in chapter 1, verse 12, it's all about being firmly established in the truth. That's why he's writing 2 Peter, so that you would be firmly established in the truth and not topple over. It's where you need to be. Develop a passion for pursuing the truth and you will be steadfast against the wind of false teaching. Let's pray. Lord, these are, in a way, harsh words against false teachers found in Scripture, and there are others. But at the same time, they are true. It's your true and just verdict against those who in the most wicked way twist your words and lead others to destruction. Nothing is more serious to you than those who who manipulate and twist and change your word, for that means they're changing the truth, and it is through the truth that people are saved. I pray you protect this church from false teaching as we go through books like Second Peter. You strengthen us. Help us all to deepen our roots in the truth, in the word, so that Berean Bible Church remains strong as other churches fall. And Lord, they are falling. More and more Christians are turning to falsehood. They are unaware. Give them grace. Give us grace to uh, to be strong in, in you again. And although, although harsh, we thank you for words like this, serious words calling us to pay attention to a serious threat. And may we do that now. And take heed, grow strong, and keep a, keep a watchful eye for any deceitful influence that might come into this church. Thank you for your blessing upon us, for keeping us strong. May that continue for years to come. It is in your name we pray. Amen.